Hello, and welcome to episode number 366 of the Armin Show podcast, Science, People, Creativity. The show is booming out here. We learn more, connecting with individuals who know, have experienced, try things, make things, and more. Subscribe if you haven't, YouTube, all the places. We are all over the place. On this episode here, we have a fellow podcast host, as well as a writer, science educator, creator, his podcast is called Species. My guest today, Mackin Murphy. Mackin, welcome to the show. Hi, Armin. Great to be with you today. I'm glad to have you on. This is a wonderful thing. I noticed first alliteration, Mackin Murphy, MM. That's a wonderful feature and will always be beneficial, easier to remember. That's cool. Now, Mackin, can you tell us a bit about where you are currently, your recent studies or what studies you have done and what has led you to where you are at the moment? Well, that's a few questions. Um, right now I'm in America. I'm visiting my mom um, and my dad actually, but I'm in my mom's art studio. So I did not do the painting behind me. Uh, that's, that's her work. Um, but normally I live in England. Um, I'm a student at the University of Oxford, a master's student. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, so I study anthropology. I, I did a degree in anthropology at Boston University. Um, and then I'm just finishing up a degree, a master's in science in cognitive and evolutionary anthropology at Oxford. That is a super category. Now you are at Oxford. One thing about that, as far as Oxford, what are you liking about it the most when you think of it? What resonates with you most about the institution that is valuable to you? Well, I don't fit in at all. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous place for me to be. It's mostly British people. Um, and I'm like aggressively American, even though my mom is British and my dad's Irish. Um, I've kind of ended up just, you know, soaking up the American culture throughout my childhood. And so I totally don't fit in. Fit in. I mean, they think that I'm just like a wild animal. Um, and, but, you know, I kind of like it though. I mean, I like dressing up in the tuxedos and like putting on the robes. Um, I like all the fancy stuff. I enjoy it. So, so it, it's been great and I'm just finishing up there. So I'm actually, I'm quite sad about it coming to an end um, because it's been wonderful. We have these brief moments in our time. I like that you mentioned, I didn't fit there, fit in there at all. Has that been a part of your existence a long time? I would say that in some features of mine, what about yourself? Has that been a theme at different times or is this just a rare case? I don't know. I mean, maybe I fit in at some point, some places, but I, I definitely don't think, um, I don't think, I don't think Oxford is the, is the usual place for someone like me. I think that that's, that's a lot to do with, um, that's a lot to do with me being American and there not being a lot of Americans there, but you know, also kind of my attitude, I'm not a particularly fancy person. Um, and you know, it's a very preppy, very formal, very, uh, posh as they would say environment. Um, and I'm not really a posh person, so, you know, uh, but, but in terms of not fitting in other places, I mean, yeah, I, I felt, I felt pretty at home at Boston university. Uh, that was, that was kind of my people. So I have, but I still, I love my friends at Oxford. I've had a great time, made a lot of great friends. Um, I've actually, I've enjoyed it. Um, it's, it's been the best year of my life. So, so I've had a great time. Um, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely an odd bird there. Yeah. That's fair. We mentioned Boston. I've always been talking positively about the area. Would you say there's a high 
percentage of intelligent individuals in that region and you can feel it or is it it just seems like regular people uh there's a lot of people who think they're intelligent there yeah but i don't, I don't know <laughs> i don't know if you actually measured it um whether they would be um but yeah i mean look boston oxford they're both places that have been uh uh, that, that are definitely hubs for, um, for intellectual sorts. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. I like certain regions and looking at them now, your podcast is cool as heck. We both have a show and yours. The first thing I noticed when I looked at the species podcast that you have had for a long time is that animals, each one different animal. Yeah. I mentioned uh, ideas about them. You like animals. What would the average person take away when they see the species podcast and listen to an episode? What would the average person take away when they see the species podcast? Um, I have no idea. I, I guess, um, I mean, species is a show where I talk about one animal every week. Um, or that was what it was for a very long time. I, sh I ended up reducing that to two weeks because um, I'm getting very busy with grad school. But species is basically a show where every couple of weeks I pick a species of animal or my listeners pick a species of animal more, more often, certainly lately. I basically only do requests at this point. Um, and I'll talk about everything to do with the animal. I mean, it's, it's not like a lot of animal content is just like basically a list of facts about the species. And that's not really what interests me. You know, I, I want to get more into... I want to go beyond just facts and go into thinking around the animal. I, I can't remember who said it, but um, there's, a, there's a quote I like, which is that animals are good to think with. And so what species is, is I pick an animal and then I kind of think with that animal for 20 minutes to half an hour. Um, and, you know, I mean, you get to the, you get all the facts as well. It's a very information dense show. If you listen to it, it's like, I would say there's a new piece of information every five seconds, the whole show. It's, it's very, very dense. But I also like to talk about things around the animal that go beyond the facts, um, philosophy, um, writing, um, culture, just things around the species. Because look, I mean, we're animals, we're living among animals, right? We're living on this planet surrounded by other species. And most of us are just acting like we're here alone, right? Like for the most part, humans are acting like we are the only species on earth but the truth is, is that we're surrounded by essentially alien life forms right fellow aliens who are living with us on this rock and i figure we may as well get to know them better so i speak about them and think with them a little bit and i enjoy it i don't know what the average person would take away from it but i guess um i guess you'd have to ask the average person it's a valid point long live the average person right. this is a great idea about focusing on something beyond right the facts i that reminds me of many animal based shows of the past where it's a series of facts it might as well have been a trivia thing on some internet web page and you don't really connect with it if you're looking for more depth yeah like i mean the thing thing. Is, like, like i remember um so i'm staying with my parents right now my dad asked me uh my dad asked me if he want if we wanted to watch like some show about animals, some like wildlife documentary, because I'm like the animal guy or whatever. And I'm like, no, I, like I would get bored. Like I, like, I, I I'm very interested in animals, um, but I want more than just kind of seeing images of them and learning facts about them. I want ideas. I want something deeper, something more substantive. And that's what I try to do on my show. And I think that's what that's why it has 
resonated with people over the years and why it has, why it has grown so much. You just reminded me specifically of one time I talked to Nicola Rehani and she, uh, she's at, I think she was at university college London, but yep. she looked at cleaner fish and how they do, they basically do game theory in the ocean where they decide who to clean and who not to clean of the other fish. And there's more depth to it than if they just said these fish clean other fish. But then you're thinking about like, they're doing the same games that we are doing as people. Oh wait, they're not that different. They have to decide which fish they're going to clean or they get pushed away. I forgot the dynamic, but they have game theory just like we do. Yeah. Nicola Raihani, a, a genius, very smart woman. Um, and, and very interesting thinker as well. I've, I've interfaced with her work and then spoken to her privately a couple of times. Um, but yeah, on cleaner fish, I mean, I, I don't think I did an episode on cleaner fish, but I think a few years ago I did an episode on false cleaner fish, which are essentially a species of animals. So we're all aware of like animals that evolve to look like poisonous animals, right? So like there are animals that hijack or freeload on the fact that another species is poisonous by evolving to look like them to trick predators. Hey, I'm the poisonous animal. Don't eat me. Right. Well, there are animals that do the same thing with, um, with imitating other species who aren't poisonous. They just, there are benefits to looking like them. So there's a species that has evolved to look like a cleaner fish, right? So that way predators don't eat them. This isn't a cleaner fish. They're not cleaning the inside of any predator's mouth, but because they look like a cleaner fish, the predators think, oh, there's one of my little buddies. They're probably, um, they're probably not going to, you know, they're probably going to clean my mouth. So I, I, I better not eat them. But in reality, they're just in disguise. Right. And it's interesting you bring up cleaner fish because that's actually, um, I do, I did write about them in my children's book, uh, with Macmillan or with, um, neon squid, which is the, uh, kind of a sub publisher under Macmillan. Um, but yeah, I've got a children's book out. Um, you can probably buy it just, wherever, just in any nearby store. So if you have like an eight to 10 year old in your life who wants to know about symbiosis, um, I talk about cleaner fish in that book. Yeah. Animal sidekicks. Yeah. That's cool. By the way, it's animal sidekicks, amazing stories of symbiosis in animals and plants. So you've got it written it up. Yeah. You got the, you got the little promo ready to go. I like <laughs> now that came out this year. This is a wonderful thing. When a book comes out, how much time uh, did you put into it before that planning to get to there and will books be something you'll be looking at in multiple ways in the future? Yeah. I mean, I never really planned to write a children's book. Um, the publishers approached me because of my, um, you know, I mean, species is, is popular with adults, but it's probably more popular with children. I aimed the show at adults, right? It's a very complex, um, show in terms of information. But who ended up listening to it? I mean, there are definitely, there's definitely a cohort of college students and working professionals, but a lot of children have really gravitated towards the show. And so a, there was a new nonfiction children's book publisher. They were aware of me as a writer, but also aware of my podcast. They came to me, they said, hey, would you like to write this, um, this book for us? And I said, yes. So that's, that's how I got into it. I never planned to write a children's book. I'm definitely a writer. Um, I, you know, I, I, want to publish adult nonfiction. Um, but this, this was kind of what the market demanded. So uh, I went with it. However, I had a great time and would love to do it again. So I would say that, um, assuming things go well and they seem to be going well with this children's book, 
then yeah, I'll, I'll probably do it again, but we'll see. I mean, uh, I'm, a, I'm a busy person, so. Another point. Yeah. Now, one thing that comes to mind is you've covered many different animals. Are there any that stand out to you when you think about something we do as people and something they do on a regular basis that you think of regularly? Is there any animals that jump to mind like daily or weekly where you're doing something and it's not that different from what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, almost always, right? Almost, almost all species. If I look at a wild animal, I will, or, or a domesticated animal or a captive animal, I often realize, oh my God, their, their daily goals and orientation is very similar to mine, right? Like if you compare your schedule to any other mammal's schedule, it's actually pretty similar, right? Like you have to spend about a third of the day to half the day sleeping. Um, you have to eat um, throughout the day. So getting food is a very important thing. Um, you have to secure shelter if you're the type of animal that needs it, right? So we're doing these things. You, you, I, I don't know if this shows for adults. I'm assuming it is. You mate, yeah. right, at various points, maybe throughout the day. I don't know, your personal preference. But, but the, and then you look at your life goals, how it's oriented. What do we do with our time, right? Like we do a job to secure resources to help us survive, right? And if you're a more ambitious person, well, then you're trying to, and most, most of us are ambitious in this sense, you're trying to survive and reproduce. So you're engaging in reproductive effort and mating effort, right? Those are the, like the two big things, um, survival effort, reproductive effort, mating effort, um, trying to raise your children, um, trying to secure a good mate, trying to secure food, secure shelter. All these things are things that all the other animals are doing as well at a basic level. Now, more specifically, it's often the case that I'll be studying some species of animal, reading about some species of animal, and I will realize, oh my gosh, like that's a very specific thing that we also do. But more often, I just think about it in the general sense that animals are trying to survive and reproduce, we're trying to survive and reproduce, and we can twist our minds up all sorts of ways to make our behavior more complicated than it is. But the truth is, is that if you're doing a good job surviving and doing a good job reproducing, then you're probably a pretty happy primate. One thing that comes to mind there, we are both, I would say, direct individuals. If we had to compare animals and humans, would you say that animals are more direct than us because we have more communication and language that we've built up to uh, obfuscate things? Are we more hidden and they are more direct in total? Depends on the animal. Some animals are direct, as you say, in their communication, but oftentimes animals are very covert, very sneaky um, and deceptive in their communication. I mean, deception is something that's basic to the animal kingdom. Even earlier in this conversation, I, I was telling you about the false cleaner fish, where they're pretending behaviorally and looking aesthetically like a real cleaner fish so that they don't get eaten. That's not the most direct thing in the world. Now, maybe humans engage in a little bit more tactical deception than the average species, maybe a lot more. I don't know what the average species would be. Um, I don't even know how you would math that up. Maybe we're a particularly deceptive ape. But even if you look at other apes, you'll see deception. I remember um, Franz Duval. I don't know if you've spoken to him, but Different. the primatologist very famous primatologist. Um, he has an anecdote that he likes to share. 
about him and it, it, they're feeding chimpanzees, right? And what they're doing as kind of a recreational activity is they're burying melons throughout the enclosure while the chimpanzees are out and then letting them back in, right? So that's kind of the basic premise. And I might be completely misremembering this. It might not even be Franz de Waal who, um, who spoke about this. But anecdote is basically they're hiding um, melons from chimpanzees. The chimpanzees go back in. They're finding all the things, da, 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 find a bunch of them. And then they think they found them all and they go to sleep, right? And then as soon as they all go to sleep, one of them, right, pretending to sleep, opens their eyes and gets up while everyone else is asleep, goes to a very specific location where they knew that a melon was buried, but they chose not to, not to dig it up because they didn't want to have to share it. And then while everyone else is sleeping, they dig it up and eat it. So what did they do to get food, right? Again, we're talking about survival goals. These should be very familiar to humans. Um, what did they do? They knew where food was buried. They discovered it. And then they pretended not to find it, waited until everyone else went to sleep, pretended to go to sleep themselves, woke up or woke up and then got the food. So they, so that's very deceptive, very indirect behavior. And I'm talking, it's almost bad that I chose chimpanzees as, as an example there because they're obviously very closely related to us, but there are distantly related species who engage um, in deception as well, such as the false cleaner fish where they're pretending to do the dance of the cleaner fish so that they don't get eaten. But in the category of small animals or even bugs, what is something we can take away from that category, like ants, spiders, flies? Is there anything when you look at them, you think, hmm, there's some link to us as well? Absolutely. Again, <laughs> again, survival and reproduction goals are very similar, right? We're looking at, I mean, they're in some species, their reproductive, their reproductive system and reproductive balance is so different that it would seem unrecognizable. Um, such as in ants or in bees. But in them, we see degrees of sociality that should be familiar to us. I mean, these are eusocial, ultra-social species. Um, they're forming nested hierarchies. They're forming communities. Um, in some cases, they're, they're interacting with other groups in forms of pseudo-intergroup cooperation, maybe legitimate intergroup cooperation, um, and maybe warfare or maybe something like warfare. So I would say that learning from them you're almost in some cases you can learn more from them than you can learn from our closest relatives i mean ants and bees are living in these extremely complex um these extremely complex social systems that are really i mean they, they, some some ants for example are engaging in agriculture right they're 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 farming aphids right they're farming fungus Right. These, these animals are extremely complicated and doing things that only we do. So I would say there's plenty to learn. Now, you mentioned the communities or the groupings. We have said for people that 100, like Facebook is based on 150 people being a general unit of how far a, a group's connections can go. And some people, when they describe like an online grouping, 150 is like the something most uh that you can have in a group where they get to know each other well enough and beyond that it's more like a disconnected element are there any other species that come to mind that have like a number like 150 that that's their close close crew yeah i mean that's a bit of a meme that that whole 150 thing i it's probably about right 
I don't know if there is like a hard limit there. I, I don't think anyone has ever said there is, but that's certainly kind of what's been exported to popular science. I know that Robin Dunbar, who, who I actually I met recently at Oxford, he's um, Professor Emeritus there, and he used to be the head of the program that I was educated in. But in any case, I, I, I was lucky enough to, to meet him um, and speak to him for a moment. He's, you know, he's the progenitor of this idea that you're referencing, this 150 um, humans or whatever it might be. Dunbar's number. Yeah, Dunbar's number, exactly. But, I mean, it's not something that we talk about a lot in anthropology anymore, uh, it, 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 for better or worse. It, it's just not a huge subject. And, but however, I know that he at least is pretty confident that this number co-varies with brain size, right? So animals with smaller brains, they have a lower group limit. And this, but this, this is it within primates that he speaks about this. If you go beyond, that's the one thing. If you go beyond primates, it actually, you know, it, it gets a little wonky, um, so, I mean, that's, that's not, I'll just say this, that's, that's not an area that I study. Um, and I, I wouldn't have that much to add on it. I, I would say that, that Dunbar will probably have more interesting things to say. One thing you just made me think of is brain size. We have substantial brains. Uh, family member has a rabbit. And sometimes I think about how much thinking they can be doing. And then recently there's these really small mosquitoes that have taken over the local region of Southern California. And even though they're so small, they're super strategic compared to the old mosquitoes and will wait until you're not looking at them or they go lower than your knees and when it's darker so that you don't notice them. They have all these little tricks, but they're this small. So question that comes to mind is how much thinking can be packed into a very small amount of brain? Like is, is a rabbit able to reach any of the level of connection and warmth that we can even with its much smaller brain yeah i mean this is this is another meme that i'm not that i'm not a huge fan of i mean the idea that connection and warmth takes a ton of brain power doesn't seem to be particularly well evidenced this is something that humans we use it to comfort ourselves because we don't really treat other animals particularly well Right. So we like to say, oh, they have smaller brains, so they don't feel the same emotions as us, yada, yada, yada. There's not a lot of evidence for that. Right. Like our big brains, what do they help us with? They help us with, you know, being, they, they help us with culture. They help us with, um, they help us with processing information. They help us with problem solving. But in terms of whether or not they, 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 our large brains help us feel strong emotion. I don't think so at all. Like there are pair bonding animals that seem to have very close relationships that aren't necessarily um, that, 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 that don't have big brains. So like some of the, some of the animals that pair bond for the longest and have extremely close relationships with their offspring, they, you know, they, it doesn't seem to be an issue um, that they have small brains. So yeah, I, I think that rabbits, whether rabbits specifically feel warmth, I, I have no idea. They probably do towards their offspring. But I also don't think that that's necessarily a particularly cognitively complex thing. The idea of 
what you're saying with uh, memes and the message that's put out versus what is actual is definitely a disconnect. Would you say there is a huge gap between the knowledge base that we currently have and what is uh, publicly shared on a regular basis? And what is the cause of this huge gap? Yeah, absolutely. There's a massive gap. I think that the cause, though, is just information transmission gets simpler. It's like we're playing a massive game of telephone from research to the public, right? Where researchers say X, Y, Z, right? And then popular science outlets say X, Y, A. And then the public reads the popular science and they say X, B, A. Um, and then the public talks to each other until it's CDL. And it's just a completely different message than what started when it was X, Y, Z. So, I mean, I think that's just, that's just how it works. Now, how do we fix that? I don't know. I try to do my best to get involved here. Um, I basically, I'm, you know, I'm a researcher, but I'm, a, but I'm, I'm on this show because I'm a popular science communicator. And so what I try to do is I try to, in, in my show and in my writing, I try to be as thoroughly sourced as possible uh, and uh, as is possible within the constraints of making a podcast, right? Like I can't have like in-text citations on a pod, um, but I, I supply a bibliography at, at the end of every show. And I, I try to use um, popular science and, ori and original articles that are pretty close to the close to good. Um, I'm not saying I'm flawless, but I am saying that, that, that I do care about this and I try to fix it. And the way I try to fix it is by transmitting research with as high fidelity as possible to the public with the knowledge that, look, the message is going to get mixed up. It's going to get confused along the way. And, and I'm kind of okay with that because some right info is better than everyone just completely making things up. This is a wonderful point here. I take away from that, that if we want to keep the fidelity high longer through the path, it's worth the more you put in deep work or focus, the more it can be maintained versus trying to dwindle it down. It's kind of like Cal Newport's deep work where uh, if you focus and bring in links from things that connect with it, you think about it, you put more effort on your end, it keeps it a sharper image going through versus if you don't want to put in effort, the message will keep uh, dropping in tears until it gets to some sort of like a headline quick headline yes mm -hmm. that's a good quality that the bibliography that's a wonderful thing many podcasts would not do that because they wouldn't um, put in the research and connect with past works that way but that maintains the scientific nature that's a wonderful thing yep that's cool Thank you. maintaining the level speaking of uh, headlines get shared a lot and there's some uh, direct happenings in recent time. And I like when I see your responses, they're very, I agree with them. They're not the loudly shared items. Usually there's like something that's like the current moment's response and then what's actually the case, but this never gets much attention, I guess because it's too direct or I'm not sure if people can keep up with it. 
um, in a recent example of individual with their, oh, which connects actually infidelity. Let's go with that first, and then maybe I'll come back to that example. Female infidelity has been what you have covered in your work. Can you tell me what led to that category? Because I'm also interested in the mating and relationships category. Let's talk. Tell me about the specific example you're thinking of. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, maybe I can draw it in. Yes. Well, there's, I would say there's one every two weeks or three weeks that shows up. The one is recently of a um, music performer and their companion, and then them going with uh, another you're person. About the Adam Levine case. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, mm -hmm. Yeah. So everybody is completely dumbfounded that Adam Levine would have an affair when he's married to, or at least in a very serious relationship, I don't know if they're married, with a Victoria's Secret model, right? I, I think I'm correct in mm -hmm. the facts there. Everybody is bewildered that he would have an affair when he is dating such a attractive woman, essentially with the premise being like, if you have someone so attractive as your relationship partner, why would you have an affair with some person that you found on Instagram, right? So everybody's bewildered. But I don't think many evolutionary human behavioral scientists are confused about this. It's been known for quite some time that the primary driver behind male infidelity is not relationship dissatisfaction, right? It's not um, that you feel like your partner is low mate value and maybe you can do better, right? Although those are primary um, predictors of female infidelity, which we'll get to. The primary direct, uh, drive for male infidelity is an evolved desire for sexual variety. Now, I want to put up a couple of really important signposts here before I talk more. I think infidelity is wrong. I think that what Adam Levine did is awful. Right, it's absolutely unconscionable. He's cheating on his pregnant wife, and then he's trying to name their child after the person who he's cheating with. A complete mania, right? I'm not saying it's good. Not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying it's unavoidable. Most men, or around half of men, do not cheat. And the vast majority of women don't cheat either, right? So I'm not saying it's unavoidable. I'm not saying it's good. What I am saying is that the primary driver of male infidelity is an evolved desire for sexual variety. Now, why did this desire evolve? Well, male mammals, the primary constraint on their reproductive success is the number of mates they have, right? If you're a male mammal and you add one additional mate, right? That's an additional person who can be, or an additional animal who can be bearing your offspring. So your reproductive success increases the more mates you have, right? So male mammals generally have a high proclivity for multiple mating. Doesn't matter with the quality of the mates. That's not as important, right? It's important in terms of weighing costs and benefits. You're not going to have an affair with anybody, right? Because there are costs to infidelity as well. You could lose your primary relationship. You could endure enormous social penalties, as we've seen with Adam Levine, right? You could be humiliated online. But in terms of the, the main motivator, it's, it's adding additional mates. Now, I'll also say another thing for those who aren't um, particularly, who aren't evolutionary thinkers, the 
the evolutionary motive, the ultimate explanation, has nothing to do with the proximate explanation, right? I don't think that Adam Levine was in his head trying to have as many kids as possible. I'm saying he evolved to be the type of person who mates with multiple people, right? Or humans evolved, male humans evolved to enjoy multiple mating because there were evolutionary benefits in our ancestry, right? And this shouldn't be confusing because when you eat an apple, you're not thinking, oh my God, this apple is delicious um, because it will help me survive, right? You're thinking, I like apples, this is delicious. It doesn't go deeper than that. You're not thinking in terms of your survival. But the reason apples taste good to you is because your primate ancestors benefited from eating fruit, right? So that's, so that's my point on the Adam Levine thing, is that it shouldn't be surprising. And it's not like Adam Levine is an anomaly either, right? I mean, Beyonce got cheated on. Shakira got cheated on. These are undeniably high value, um, high mate value individuals, right? High mate value people who unfortunately are getting cheated on. Now we can also talk as a side note. So that's my point on Adam Levine. I hope I, I hope I've been clear here. Yeah. Okay, good. In terms of female infidelity, right? In terms of female infidelity, the motives are different. Right? Female infidelity is common too. Female infidelity is also the result of evolutionary biology in an ultimate sense. In approximate sense, I'm not saying that. I understand that in an individual's life, I'm not trying to reduce the individual. But the reason that infidelity is tempting for men and women, the reasons are evolutionary. But they can't be the same reasons in women. The reason they can't is because an individual woman can maximize her, as, as long as she is interfertile with her partner, she can maximize her reproductive output with one man. The world record holder for most offspring in women, right? The woman with the most offspring ever, Valentina Vasilev, right? She had 64 kids. She had all of her kids monogamously with one man. Her husband, I should note, actually had more kids with her by having an affair, by cheating, right? So male infidelity, you can raise the number of offspring you have by increasing the number of mates you in engage with. Female infidelity, um, differently. Um, you, can incre you can't increase the number of offspring you have just by increasing the number of mates, um, but you can gain reproductive benefits from infidelity, right? Now, what would those benefits be? There's a debate, but I would say, I would say that the three hypotheses that are interesting to me right now are David Buss's version of the mate switching hypothesis, um, the dual mate strategy hypothesis or the dual mating strategy hypothesis or um, the good genes hypothesis. There are so many names for this one. Um, and then there's the multiple investors hypothesis, Brooke Shells's version, right? So those are three hypotheses for female infidelity that are very interesting to me. The mate switching hypothesis states, and, and the first two, I should note, states that women cheat for increasing the quality of their mates. Um, and then the third, which is the multiple investors hypothesis, which I'll, I'll actually talk about this one first, the multiple investors hypothesis from Brooke Shelza, and she doesn't say that it applies in all, she's a human behavioral ecologist, so she's very sensitive to context and 
ecological variables and things like that. But in her populations, what currently fits the data she has best, um, I think she would agree, is, the is her multiple investors hypothesis, which is that the reason women cheat in her society, at least the Hemba, the one that she studies, um, is to increase investment, right? Get investors from multiple men, right? If you have one boyfriend, that's, that's one guy getting you stuff. If you have two boyfriends, that's two guys getting you stuff. So have more boyfriends. That's great. So that, that's her theory. Very cool. The other two both posit that the reason women cheat is primarily out of a desire for increasing the quality, not the quantity, the quality of their mates. Now, this is confusing. Why would increasing the quantity of, of mates, which is what you're doing when you, when you engage in multiple mating, why would that increase the quality of your mate? Well, it can do that in two ways. One is through the mate switching route, right? So the mate switching hypothesis, this is David Buss's favorite explanation. When a woman cheats, she is seeking a new mate. She is looking for a new partner, a new boyfriend, a new husband, a new mate. A lot of evidence for that. It's very interesting. And then the good genes hypothesis is essentially that when a woman cheats, she is hoping to pair the best genes possible, right, from an affair partner. So the highest quality genetic mate and the highest quality, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what that could mean. Highest quality genetic mate with the highest quality paternal investment of an in-pair partner. Um, so th those are the three theories that are kind of bouncing around this space. But I would say that they could all, they're not mutually exclusive. They could all be true at various times um, to various degrees. But they're all, they're all very interesting and have different amounts of evidence. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to take this wherever you want. Um, but that's kind of the theoretical landscape. We know why, we think we know why men cheat. It's a desire for sexual variety present in male mammals that is essentially increasing the number of mates you have to increase the number of offspring you can have. And then the explanations for female infidelity, much more controversial. Essentially, it, it could be that it helps. Um, it could be that it, that, it, that it helps you get more resources from more guys. It could be that it helps you get better genetics from one guy, pair it with the in-pair investments. And it also could be mate switching. Um, and I'll, and I'll also just note um, that obviously th this, th th I mean, this is, this is evolutionary psychology. We talk about sex differences. None of this is saying that we have no free will. I'm not a genetic determinist, right? Uh, and none of it's saying that like the sexes are all different in all cases all the time. Obviously there's tons of overlap um, between the sexes. I'm also not making any commentary on, on gender and sex. It's all just within that domain. Um, and I'll also note um, that this is an, I'm a male scientist. I recognize that I'm a male scientist. I'm studying human mating. And so there can be some confusion and controversy there. But this is a space that there's, there's tons of um, female scientists involved. Uh, like the, one of the main um, people, well, like Brooke Shelza is obviously a woman studying multiple investors. And the, the good genes or dual mating strategy hypothesis that's been really well explored by Marty Hazelton, also a woman. So, so, you know, it's, it's not like, I don't want to give the impression that it's just men, men 
men in this space just stupidly roaming around theorizing about what women could be doing. It's, it's obviously, you know, both genders studying this behavior. Yeah. Like a few of the items you have mentioned here, one, it, the difference in, we can say strategies of each side, they're not the same, which is a, a great point. And that even that point is countered in many popular discussions. I see just the fact that there's different paths that each would take based on what's built into us biologically. This equalizing force seems to negate that differentiation and take away our specializations in a way. And the reason we actually are uh, on each side, which is something. And then um, the strategies, that's a good description of the strategies for women and also how they're different from for men. And they seem very straightforward, but it, some of these things, if I describe them on a public forum, if I responded with those descriptions, they would be downplayed in terms of things that don't actually apply. I see a lot of what doesn't actually apply to reality broadcasted regularly, even though reality is still being done. So it's being done, not talked about, and then uh, showcased with like a, it could be this way type of deal. Mm. Um, so one thing that comes to mind is the, the dual mating strategy. How might that work to acquire um, investment of items and such from one and uh, genetic strength or such from another? Yeah, so this was this, this is probably the best study of the three theories. It was the most popular for a really long time. Now it's kind of dual mating strategy versus mate switching. And very few people in EvPsych are really discussing the multiple investors hypothesis. Everybody acknowledges it, but it's kind of like, it's not really discussed as much, even though I think it's, it's really got legs and it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, so the dual mating strategy hypothesis, how, how, how would this work? Essentially, in real life, the way it's theorized to work is you're dating one guy, right? You're seeing one guy, he's your pair bond and you're getting, and I'm not saying this is what I think is true. I, I actually, I think that the one that's probably true is the mate switching hypothesis in most cases for what it's worth. But let's talk about the dual mating strategy hypothesis anyway, in theory. You're dating a guy and you're pair bonded and you're in a long-term relationship, but for a short-term thing, you could probably date a guy who has better genes, right? Now we can talk about like what are better genes, but in the research, essentially it's genes that are more likely to lead to robust, healthy, young. So if assuming, and so uh, I, guess, I guess the way to think about it would be that the mate switching hypothesis says that women are looking for the whole package in one guy, right? Whereas the mates with the dual mating strategy hypothesis says that they're trying to build the best whole package piecemeal. Best investment possible from one guy. And when I say best investment, I mean best dad, 
right? The guy who's going to be the best dad for your kid behaviorally. And then the best genes for the other, from another guy. So this would be the guy who is going to give birth to them or didn't give birth. Uh, he's probably not going to give birth. The guy who's most likely to have the genes necessary to produce healthy, robust um, offspring. Right. And also potentially under the sexy sons hypothesis, the most attractive sons. Right. So it's pairing those, two, it's pairing those two things. And the idea would be that women will value good dad qualities in their main partner. Um, and then they'll value like good genes qualities in an extra pair partner. So they'll send, and what, I mean, what this works out to in the research often is like for the good genes guy, sexiest guy possible. And then for the good dad guy, like nicest guy possible. And that's, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's the idea. And there's a bunch of predictions that come from that. Initially, some of those predictions were verified, but now they look a little, it's kind of up in the air. We know, we, you know, we're, we're not really, not really confident in it. One thing that always comes, that's interesting. One thing that always comes to mind is the trajectory of the strategies and how I keep, it seems like I see the same copy of the cycle play out across time and in discussions where going back to what we said earlier, the, at certain ages, there is uh, a lot of physical happenings with a certain demographic. Then at a certain point, um, women will shift the strategy to less uh, exploration and then looking towards the investor end uh, to secure that part. And the descriptions are always funny when I see them because early age, uh, women will mention that, Oh, um, guys, they don't stick with me in this way, but it's only this small group of guys. Oh, what do you think about the idea that there is a huge chunk of guys here? Then, um, women, uh, picking who they would be with. And then a small group of guys that, uh, most of the women are inclined towards that uh, then don't stick with them or invest because there's no need to because there's a billion options. Yeah, I mean, this is an idea that's pretty popular, um, but I think it mostly comes from dating apps, to be honest, because I think that that's probably true on dating apps, right? I've never used a dating app, actually. I, I have no idea what that is. Um, but so I'm really, I'm like, I haven't done any dating app anthropology. <laughs> but I would say that on dating apps, it's probably true that very handsome guys do very well and then everyone else kind of struggles, right? But in the real world, in the real walk down the street and look at couples holding hands, I'm sorry, you're going to see some guys who aren't handsome at all, who have girlfriends. Uh, I, I mean, that, that's just true. Like, like literally, especially if you're in a city and you can see a lot of people, pause this podcast, go out and go for a walk, if you don't believe me, and look at couples holding hands. I mean, this idea that only super handsome guys are able to get dates 
is insane. It's not true. Go out in the street. There are some dudes who, frankly, aren't attractive at all. They're doing fine. So, but on dating apps, it probably is true. And so I think that that's kind of where it comes from is this super online culture and where, you know, we, we do see that everyone's kind of on the internet all the time. And these online types, they go on dating apps, they fail on the dating apps because they're not particularly handsome. And that's all that matters on, on an app like that, where it's, you know, it's photos. And then they think, oh, that's what the world's like. No, the vast majority of people, men and women, can get in relationships if they want to. Um, and then you made a second point about women being like, oh, he won't settle down with me. I think that's, I think that that's legit. As, I think that that is legit to an extent. Um, I think that here's what we see. We see that men lower their standards for short-term mating. So it's possible. I'm not saying that this is true. I haven't seen any data on this. It's possible that men lower their standards for a short-term affair. And then the woman in that short-term affair mistakenly is like, oh, guys don't want to settle down with me because she doesn't realize that she's just like, he's out of her league for a long-term thing, but she's in his league for a short-term thing, right? Might be uncomfortable, but that, that, could, be, that could be true. But most of these women could totally find guys who will commit to them and settle down. I mean, I think that a lot of the kind of dating crisis or mating crisis or whatever people are calling it, a lot of it is manufactured. I mean, it's like, there are definitely people out there for you. Uh, you, you just gotta, you can only do two things. You, I mean, you can, you can either, if you want to get into a relationship, you only have two options. You lower your standards or you raise your mate value. That's all you can do. Either find out a way to bring more to the table or care less about what other people are bringing to the table for you. If you do either of those things, you'll absolutely get into a relationship. I think that you should probably do both, right? You should probably do a little bit of both if you're struggling, if you're someone who wants to be in a committed relationship. Now, if you want to participate in hookup culture, right? That's mostly about looks and that's going to be, you know, largely, um, I mean, I'm not religious, but that's largely what God gave you, right? Uh, that's whether you can participate in hookup culture, which a very small percentage of people do, by the way, it's not like most people are doing this. Then yeah, you, you're, you're, you're kind of, were you lucky or were you not lucky? But in terms of getting into a relationship, a meaningful relationship, which is much more valuable than just hooking up with strangers for most people, right? Then it's just, how can I be a better partner? How can I bring more to the table? And can I lower my standards a little bit? What do I, what do I actually need? What's, what's my kind of bare minimum here? And figuring those two things out, that'll really help. And in terms of bringing more to the table, that's obviously trying to look your best, right? For, for a start. And this is, you know, I mean, the... the a lot of these online spaces are very obsessed with looks. And I think to an extent they are important, right? You should hit the gym. You should get a nice haircut, right? You should try to dress well. These things are important, but also like, I don't know, um, do something interesting with your time, right? Like get, get a cool hobby. Like you would, you would be much more popular um, as a man or as a woman. If, if you have some talents that can attract mates, such as, being a good musician, being a good artist, these type of things, these, these are skills that you work at and get better at, and then they attract people. Um, not saying that you should do them just for that reason. They're, they're, 
enjoyable in themselves, but those things help. Um, getting a better job, putting yourself in a position where you can actually bring more resources to the table, right? And then fixing your mental health, becoming a more stable person, a more socially competent person who's more enjoyable to be around. Now, all these things are easier said than done. I'm not saying that like um, becoming an awesome guitar player and getting your mental health in order uh, are things that can be done overnight. But I think that this is, this is basic advice that will work for almost everybody. Um, and one, one person, just so I can put, put a quick plug out, um, Jeffrey Miller is actually one of the only people, but this was back in the day. He doesn't really do this anymore. He's like, Primal Polly. Um, yeah. Primal Polly on Twitter. Yeah. And I've had him on my show. He's, he's kind of, I think grown out of this as an interest space. He seems to be more interested in like cryptocurrency and pronatalism and like all these uh, other things. But back in the day, he was really good on like sane, normal self-improvement, especially for men. Um, but for men and women, it's kind of the same game. It's like, how can I, um, how can I make myself more attractive? And then after that, it's just lowering standards. Look, I mean, very few people are going to end up with someone who they're a hundred percent happy with. I mean, that's, you'd be very lucky. So take humans as humans, everybody's flawed, um, and then count your blessings. One thing there, I used to write a kind of self-improvement productivity blog a long time ago, 2008, 9, 10, 11. And I liked that space because it was about productivity, working on yourself, understanding who you are, setting goals, those kinds of things. I like that category. And separately, the item of settling here is a great point. Would you say that, is there a difficulty, does someone have an advantage if they're able to see the bigger picture uh, versus uh, sort of staying in the proximate world or right here, I will not quote settle ever. Is there a huge disadvantage to that where you're like trapped forever beyond that? Because I won't settle. If you raise your mate value enough, or if your mate value is high enough, then you do not need to settle at all. Uh, you can basically, anyone would be happy to be in a relationship with you if your mate value is high enough. Uh, so some people will have very high standards and then yeah, they'll, they'll find someone who meets those standards. But the vast majority of people need to be realistic about who they can date. Uh, it, it's literally, it's a function of who wants to, who wants to date, right? I mean, like, I would say that having a very myopic view of like, I will never settle if that's working for you, fine. But if it's been, if you've been single for years, single and looking for years, well, okay. Maybe it's time that you be more realistic about what you bring to the table as a mate or get serious about like, how can I bring more to the table as a mate? So I would say, yes, I would say that someone, someone who has low standards is going to be very happy um, compared to someone who has extremely high standards on average. And that's true with life as well. You know, um, I think there's, there's a, there's a quote about that. Like the secret to happiness is low expectations, something like that. I think that's uh, it's something like that, but anyway, it, it's true. And it's true in dating as well. 
I've seen a math thing where it said the difference, your happiness is the difference between expectations and what occurs. So if you adjust the expectations. Right. Yeah. And the expectations is much easier to adjust. I mean, I don't know. It, it, it is tough. I get it. I like, maybe I'm being a little, uh, you know, cavalier about these things. It does suck to have to lower your standards if you're looking to date. But be realistic. What is your view on, uh, I see an article every day or two of the increasing, uh, not with somebody and no children demographic that will also is very steadfast as it's only increasing in the next 10 years in maybe the Western United States or Spain, other Westernized nations is that, does this trend appear to be continuing? It's something I'm interested in, but I feel like I need more. I, like I definitely see that on Twitter. I, like I, it's not something that I've read about a lot. It's something that I've, that I've seen on the internet quite a bit, but it's something I need more information about, right? Like if those people are happy, single and childless, and I know many people who are not many, but I do know older people who are childless and very happy about that. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not a crisis if the people it's their business, it's not my business. Like if like one of the things that, that is so weird for me is seeing these strange guys online who are like really concerned about women being childless in their thirties and forties. It's not your business, bro. It's not your business. If she's happy, she's happy. Um, like they're posting pictures of like, you know, women with children, women without children and being like this, you know, like you're gonna, your eggs are going to dry up. You're never gonna have kids. And it's like, what's it to you? Who cares? If that's, if that's what she, if that's the life she wants to live, that's fine. Um, me personally, I do want kids. If I end up childless, I'll be very, I'll be very unhappy, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's everyone's individual choice in terms of it being like a broader crisis. I don't know. I mean, I know there are, there are people who are very pro-natalist and are like, oh my God, we have to raise the birth rate. I know that Elon Musk is like frantically trying to do that himself. I don't know what, I don't know what he's up to, a complete weirdo. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I, I don't really, I don't really see the big deal. If, if you don't want to have kids, don't have kids. That's fine. Uh, but however, if, if, if it's people aren't having kids because they're trying to and failing, well, that's very upsetting. And I, I would obviously like to, you know, I'd like to see that remedy. But I, again, this isn't, this isn't something I've really thought about that much. So. One thing I liked that you brought up earlier, which I wanted to bring back is evolutionary cause, big picture versus proximate cause, smaller view. How can one enhance or expand their view to include more of the bigger picture so that their life isn't always a narrow, oh, it's not working. Oh, it is working. It isn't working, but you can't see, um, how we got here and what might work well for a lifetime. That's a good question. I would say studying evolutionary biology is helpful for this. If that's something you're serious about, you want to understand the big picture 
better, then evolutionary biology is the place to start. I would say that on specific items throughout your day, you can ask yourself, well, why am I feeling this way? And sometimes knowing the evolutionary logic kind of takes the wind out of the sails a bit, right? Um, yeah, like, like, like I, I guess one really clear example is jealousy, right? Like if you realize like, oh, my evolution made me oversensitive, right? Evolution made me like a little, you know, high alarm bells in terms of threats to my um, partner's fidelity, then you can maybe relax a bit because you can realize, oh, I'm being ridiculous. This is just ape brain going wild um, here. I should not be so distressed. Um, but and then in terms of other examples, I guess, I mean, there are other things I could say, but it's like, the, for the most part, I think that your body is wise and it's good to, it's good to listen. Um, but there are some things like David Buss talks about, um, this is this ties back to the Adam Levine thing. Actually, this, this is a good example. David Buss talks about how men who are aware of the fact that they have an evolved desire for sexual variety might be less likely to cheat because they understand like, oh, this is just like, a dumb evolutionary vestigial trait that I can ignore. It doesn't like, it's not some incredibly important thing that I have to pursue. It's just evolution playing tricks on your mind. So if that, so David Buss kind of argues that that might help men stay faithful. So those I are like that things. idea. I use that a lot. The way you just described it is much more clear than the way I would describe it. But not taking heavy account of items that seem to be of the past to cause a certain effect. But if you can see beyond that and you're not uh, needing it in that capacity, you can disregard it. And I've done that many times in different ways and it's been fine. It's been good in that way. It's like a understanding of the items that are put on you in the first place and then adjusting from that. Hmm. Speaking of, you mentioned uh, David Buss. Who are some key figures who have been influential to you in your thinking or the direction of your study? Uh, that's a good question. People have already mentioned Brooke Shelza, David Buss, Jeffrey Miller. All of them have influenced me in some way or another. But mostly it's my professors. Mostly it's the people who actually who actually taught me. Uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to the evolutionary psychologist, uh, Carolyn Hodge-Shimian. She was uh, my first biological anthropology professor. And she's an evolutionary psychologist, which depending on which university you're at, that's either in the anthropology department or in the psychology department. We can talk about where it's where it fits better. But, you know, that kind of happy coincidence that I was introduced to biological anthropology by an evolutionary psychologist, that definitely led me on a human behavioral science journey. I wouldn't say that I'm an evolutionary psychologist. That's probably not a, a very a super accurate um, description of how I think about these issues. I think that I, I, in terms of my thinking, I often feel like I resonate more with human behavioral ecologists, but 
yeah, in terms of the basic idea that human behavior evolves um, and, and there's some biological influence on our behavior that evolved as a result of evolutionary biology, that's, yeah, that, that comes from um, Hodgkinian to me because she was educated in Santa Barbara and all that. And she happened to be my first anthropology professor. So that definitely started me on the journey. Long live Santa Barbara. Yeah, long live um, Santa Barbara. Oh, I want to throw that in there. I was at UCSB, long live the institution. It's great. And I will oh, also right. be... What, what, what yes, did, you, was, did you study psych? I did biochemistry there. Biochemistry. Did you get any of the uh, evolutionary psychology through the water there? I, well, I will say I absorbed some... And I have read much since then, so I will give some credit there. Yes. Yeah. Cool. I like that category quite, uh, very much. So, oh yeah, which 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 department do you think it, it would fit in more based on what you said earlier? Biological anthropology, personally. No. I I mean, for the most part, it depends on the it depends on the lab. There's some labs that would fit better in the psychology department, but a lot of times, I mean, it's kind of like. You know, you're you're in your you're in your own as an evolutionary psychologist, you're kind of in your own outpost in a psychology department, whereas in a biological anthropology department you fit in. However, even biological anthropology it depends because it's like if you're a biological anthropologist in an anthropology department that's broader, right? Like it's mostly sociocultural anthropology, well that's probably the worst place for an evolutionary psychologist. So I, I'd say it depends on the university where you should where you should put one. Um, I know that Harvard solved this by having like a, they've got their own like human evolution and behavior department now, which is just like putting them on their own. It's not, it's not all evolutionary psychologists it's actually run by a cultural evolutionist, but yeah, Joe Henry, who I also spoke to on the show. You reminded me of a concept right there. Is it better for a person if they want to be a notable figure to be in a space where they are completely out or uh, atypical of that group or to be around 40 very similar individuals or as similar as possible which one of these is more likely if if you had to uh judge uh to make that person become a notable figure. I mean, you almost asked me if I had to guess, and I think, I think a guess would be better than, than any answer that I could right. give. I mean, right. I'm, I'm not, you know, I mean, I, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can, I don't think I have an answer for that. I think it depends on the individual person. I think though, though that in science, you want to work with a team. Yeah, like, like, honestly, like big team science is kind of the way of the future and uh, more brains on a project is, Great. So you want to, and for, for that, you kind of need people who share basic ideological, um, or I won't even say ideological, just basic beliefs in common. Uh, it doesn't even need to be ideological. It's just they, they have the same kind of power. They're working within the same paradigm scientifically. So I would say, but in terms of being a notable individual, I'm not sure. Uh, it depends. I, if you're talking in academia, I think that the best way to gain like a reputation is probably by having a good team. But again, I wouldn't really be the person to ask. That's fair. I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm notable for podcasting and writing, which, which have been very lonely, very solo activities. Uh, so 
Mm. That's true. They are pretty solo. That's a good way to describe it. I don't really think about it that way. That is a good point. It is more of a self-oriented, not connected with the outside. Usually, some people, they do link in some way. Yep. Also, I pointed out before that usually the people who are most, I would say, wise uh, have their areas of understanding and then the areas where that's not their area of work or research, they're like, that's not for me. Whereas those, I would say, with without such a wisdom might throw ideas at every category, even if it's not their area of prolific nature. So that's a good quality I like to notice. One thing that I do a lot of is reading. Are there any books this year that have influenced you in uh, some direction or very memorable that you have read? Tell me about your reading or in past years, any books or category you read? Yeah, I read a lot that's completely irrelevant to uh, what what we're kind of talking about in this conversation. Right now I'm reading a book about, uh, I think it's called The Forgotten Highlander. It's about a um, prisoner of war. And I just finished uh, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, which was also excellent. And then before that, I was reading uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, which is kind of like a self-improvement classic. So, I mean, my reading is, is all over the place, as you can see. That's, that's self-improvement, that's fiction, that's a memoir. I love memoirs. But in terms of relevance that I've read this year, I love David Buss's book. That was great. The uh, When Men Behave Badly. That was really good and actually really relevant to, it covers a lot of the ground that we've discussed in this, um, in this show. I also liked um, Mate by Jeffrey Miller. Again, some of the content in the show, it's stuff that I learned from that, from that book, which was mostly quite useful. Um, Anatomy of Love by Helen Fisher. Helen Fisher is great. And her book on love is extremely well written and unusual in that most of these people, when they write about romantic love, it kind of feels like they've never been in love, right? They don't, they seem to like not know how it feels. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do, but they're writing about it in such a cold way. It kind of like, all the fun is gone. Like they're, they're writing about romantic love. I, I guess it, I guess it's like, I feel like I'm reading someone who's an expert on fluid dynamics, but has no idea how to swim. <laughs> and they're telling me how swimming works. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I've got, I've got it. I understand how the water moves, but not, but tell me how the water feels. Right. Her book is unusual in that it talks about it at every level, her anatomy of love, which is, an old book, but she did a revised edition in like 2016, I think. Anyway, her book on romantic love is very good because it, it, it doesn't read like that. It's, it's like, it it actually gets into, um, the sensation and the experience and it feels very relatable as well as the neurochemistry, the evolutionary biology, the brain systems involved. Really great book. Yeah. So I recommend that one. How about that? If I, if you're asking for a book recommendation, Anatomy of Love by Helen Fisher. That was good. That one right there. Helen Fisher. You know, well, two things. One, that is hilarious when, right, you're looking for this and then 
the person who's presenting this uh, this layer and well, completely missing what. Yeah, it's not even what I'm looking for. It's just kind of like right, like I'm trying to read about the experience of romantic love, let's say, and then I'm like, well, I mean, I feel like I know less about it now. Uh, you know what I mean? Like the, the because the informational content is so divorced from the experiential side of it. Um, but some writers are are very good at integrating those things. Um, I, I, I'm not. I, please don't think that I'm subliminally um, criticizing someone. I have no one specific in my mind here, but some writing on romantic topics, I'm like, get me out of here. This is, you know, there, there's more to it, especially when it's when it's aimed at the pu the public, right? When it's when it's popular science writing, I'm like, let's let's get some more more action going, something more interesting. This is a direct link. It makes me think that's what you are bringing to the table with your show is that because some shows that would talk about animals, they might be informative in some, uh, itemized nature, but afterward you might feel more disconnected from the animals because, yes. Oh, okay. They have that. They do this, 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 they're not like us. And then where it's yours is not that way. And now it's a uh, link to, Oh, we have the same paths. We basically our day. We're running through our day as uh, paired individuals. You're separate. You're uh, bridging the gap, whereas the others are almost like reinforcing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know about the. I know there is other shows about animals, but like, I don't. I don't watch them, <laughs> or I don't. I, mean, I don't. I don't listen to them. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, like, I have, um, but I mean. Yeah, I read about animals um, quite a bit. I read about them quite a bit. I, I don't listen to a lot. Um, I think some of the animal shows, the documentaries that I've like seen parts of, they've done a pretty good job at like treating the animal like an individual um, and giving some life to it. But even then, I'm like, you know, I'm more. I'm more. You know, I, I want more. I don't know. I barely watch any, but I did watch one with an octopus going through the water and person following it for a long time. I don't remember what it was called, but. Oh yeah. I didn't see that, but I, I did hear about it. Someone recommended it to me. I didn't watch it. It's like my octopus teacher or something. Um, yes. It was probably good. Like that, yeah. It was probably good. I don't watch a lot of things, period. I don't, I don't watch or listen Same. to a lot of things at all. So no. I'm too ADD. One thing that... Just all over the place. <laughs> I can't pay attention for that long. I literally, I'll, I'll turn on like a 20 minute show and I'll be leaving in like five minutes. Uh, it's, I, I can't sit still that long. That can lead to move making. I would say one thing that you just made me think of was, uh, personality qualities and those that I resonate with. And in the big five category, there's the traits, uh, do you, Check on Big Five, and do you know your Big Five traits? I have no idea. I have no, no idea. I think I'm probably pretty extroverted, probably, um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I should. I should do that. I should do that. But That's, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I like to. Uh, it helped me before many years ago to have some sort of heuristics or descriptions uh, for people I knew, and then I was like, oh, okay, I get a little bit more. And it worked out well for me, but it's, I guess it's more of a curiosity type thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, when I was a fool, 
before I, before I knew anything, when I was like 17, <laughs> I did like the Myers Briggs. I thought that was pretty good until I found out that it's like not true or something. Um, but you know, personality psychology, that's not my area of study. I don't, I find it interesting. I don't really know much about it. Um, yeah. My girlfriend will tell me about my star sign that that's about as close to that's as, that's as close to personality psychology as I get is uh, is my girlfriend telling me about my star sign. That's pretty cool. That's cool. That's informative. Actually, speaking of um, in the category of evolutionary biology, uh, what do you think of uh, Richard Dawkins? I used to think of him as the like super cool in the category. And his book was one of my first favorite books, The Selfish Gene, Memes and Replication. Um, are we still doing exactly what was described? Or, yeah, do you uh, find his material to be interesting or resonate with today? I do. I mean, it's clearly resonant. I've said the word meme like 10 times in this conversation. And it's, you know, one of the most used words on the internet now. So he was getting at something. Uh, and the selfish gene, it was, it was a very, and he would say this himself, it was a lot of the ideas of, of Trivers, uh, really, that he was popularizing. And so he made Trivers' ideas a lot more influential than they otherwise would have been. That said, I mean, memetics as a field, uh, where are the memetics departments, right? I mean, it's like where I don't know any professors of memetics, right? So in terms of whether it's taken off as a field of legitimate study, not really. And I, and I think, yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't my personal gripe with it, but it's something that you'll hear a lot of anthropologists say. It's like, well, what is the unit of selection in memetics, right? And this is this is kind of a problem with kind of the, and this isn't any shade to Richard Dawkins. I just want to be clear there. I've never spoken to him. I don't know him. Seem, seems like, I, but he's been very influential. He's been very influential and has, and has, you know, had some important contributions and he's popularized some really cool ideas. However, I would say that cultural evolution or cultural evolutionism, that field is kind of the better version of what memetics wanted to be, I would say. Um, it, it suffers from some of the same problems, right? You can also ask what's the unit of selection in cultural evolution, but it accomplishes many of the things that I think Dawkins would have wanted memetics to accomplish. That's, that's my very, uh, uh, I'm prevaricating a lot here, but that's, that's my, that's my answer. Nobody ever uses the word prevaricating. Finally, it's used. This is a great thing. I just never hear it. That's a wonderful thing. Hey, hmm. first time for everything. First, it's <laughs> pretty good. Where are the memetics departments? Yeah. Oh, they're not here. Yeah, there's none in this. In this yeah, so it clearly hasn't. I mean, that's that's all I'll say. Is like if if it if it really was like, but in terms of popular influence, it's it's more influential than 
than almost anything. I mean, we're, we're saying the word meme constantly. Everyone knows what it means. And it's useful. It's a useful heuristic to be like, yeah, a meme. It's a unit of transmissible cultural information that flies around the place. Yeah, gets shared, replicated. Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool idea. It's kind of true. It's true-ish. It's true enough, right? <laughs> it's true enough to maintain. That's a valid point. That's true. If something is a strong force to be with, there would be more behind it versus it becomes its own little island. It's described, but it doesn't go further. That's yeah. a way to look at it. But that's okay. I mean, I don't know if anything I've said here would would even bother Dawkins if he were to watch this. Like, right. I, I think he'd, pro he'd probably agree. I don't know, but probably. On the public space where everybody is interacting, I like to check which of the communication platforms do you most resonate with or find the most value in, whether it's social ones or research ones or uh, places to find information? What kinds of places do you resonate the most with? How do you mean? Like, give me an example. Like um, uh, social platforms or websites or okay. groups or online communities. I mean, the only social media that I really use right now is Twitter. Uh, but oh. that's more of a function of like, that's where I, I mean, years ago I used to use Twitter. I, I've kind of just gone back into it, but that, that's, that's really the, the function is that I got into Twitter years ago, uh, got a bunch of followers there and now it's like, you know, why would I use a different social media platform? So that's kind of what I use, but luckily it's actually really useful for like finding out information because not that tweets are good sources of information, but if you follow academics, they'll share cool articles. So I feel really like, you know, it helps me stay up to date on what my favorite scientists are doing. You know, I follow my, I follow my faves. They share their research. I read their research. I become smarter. It's great. So I guess you could say it resonates with me. Yeah. I like that capacity too. I'm very text oriented. I like seeing, articles, things highlighted that are informative, a lot of logical items presented pretty clearly. I, I like that, that element there. One thing I always like to check is what's one, um, well, whether with your show or in general, uh, a message you are wanting to reverberate out to the, the people, is there any large descriptions of what you would want people to take away after hearing your material or um, learning from you? Um, I would say <laughs> Could you ask that one more time? Sorry, I'm, I'm not <clears throat> or, yeah, or it is somewhat right? of a Yes. What, if you had a message or two, my question sometimes are 15 angles, but no, it's fine. They yeah, are it's fine. The kind of, but if you had a message of something you are looking to represent as a person in general, that you would want people to take away for their own being or a message from, um, your show that you would want people to understand about 
us as people in connection to organisms. Are there any broad messages that you daily are thinking this thing or you would want to pass on to the general public? I don't know anybody who questions like me, by the way. Nobody. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's a good question. But I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer it. I, I, I guess I don't really have like a, I don't personally have a message. I don't really have like a, a huge agenda. I would say that I believe humans are animals. And I think that we should study them more like we study other animals. And we should think about, think about ourselves as animals and be more in contact with that. And I think that there are two sides to that. One side to that is understanding our own behavior as animals better. And then the other side to that is understanding other animals as kind of kindred spirits to ourselves. Yeah. I like that bridging the gap of sorts on this one here. I would like to say, Megan, it has been wonderful to speak with you yep. and discuss these topics. Sure. So that we can all learn more. Yeah, no, it's been great. I'll say on, I'm just kind of remembering now that on the memetics point that I made, I think that there's, that there's more on that just to, so I'm citing my kind of criticisms. I think there's, there's, there's a more, I, I'm trying to remember where I read it, but I think there's a more, I'm realizing now that I'm kind of regurgitating something that I've read. And I think there's oh. more on that. I think it's in Lalan Brown, which is also, I should note, really great book. Um, but they kind of make that point. I think. Hey, what, what's the book called? Lala, it's, so it's Lalan and Brown, Sense and Nonsense. And I okay. think they were the ones, if I'm remembering correctly, I think they were the ones who made the point that like memet memetics has not taken off because there are no, there's no memetics researchers, right? Like it's, it hasn't taken off as a field. Um, but they, they speak about cultural evolution, evolutionary psychology, human behavioral ecology. That's another, add that to my list of book recommendations. Yeah. And I think that they talk more about kind of some of the points I was making there. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's wonderful. But anyway, I yeah. Like so, hey, Armin, it's been great. Um, thank you for having me on. I hope I haven't taken too much of your time. Uh, you certainly haven't taken too much of mine. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, I look forward to this release. It's been great. Thanks for being such a nice host. You're wonderful. And we are out.